0: You're listening to Citizens History, a podcast asking how history might help us to identify and address the most urgent challenges facing the United States and the world. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3. I'm Podrick Rowan, a historian at Quincy University. Today's episode, recorded on 22nd of July, 2023, in upstate Illinois, is a conversation between me and Sabaun Nasseri a specialist in modern Afghan history who is finishing up his PhD at Stanford University. We talk about Afghanistan, the background to the U.S. and NATO occupation, and we compare it to the current situation in Ukraine. And as you'll see, we barely scratch the surface and really look forward to future conversations in which we go deeper into political philosophy and a comparison of the United States and Europe. As always, we invite you to become part of the conversation and welcome your comments, criticism, and suggestions for future episodes. We're glad you're here.
1: Thanks for having me, Parik. It's, it's wonderful to be talking with you. Could
0: we, could we start with your work? Just what, what exactly you're you're working on? Uh, how your dissertation is finishing up? And yeah, I, I, we'd love to hear about this.
1: Yeah, thanks again for having me, Parik. I work on uh, a political party in Afghanistan um, that was established in one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-five. It was a leftist political party. And it was established by leftist nationalists, republicans, and uh, Marxists of all colors. So internationalists as well as, you know, kind of nationalist Marxists, even if that sounds strange. Mm -hmm. Um, And socialists. And um, the party came to power in 1978 in Afghanistan. And then there was infighting and then the Russians invaded to kind of save it from itself. Um, and the Russians initially their plans were to stay in Afghanistan for about a couple of months but they ended up obviously staying until 1989 mm-hmm. uh, so they invaded 1979, left in 1989 and then the party still ha- held on to power for another three years so even after the Soviet Union fell they were still in power in Afghanistan Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of writing a story of this this political party through interviews I've uh, interviewed a couple of members including the um, one man who was both a founder of the party Uh, he was uh, um, a foreign minister to several countries including Cuba and the United States Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was the Minister of Interior and under his um, uh, uh, in 1978 when he became the Minister of Interior there were uh, a lot of killings under when he was in power for a couple of months before he himself was prosecuted. Some kind of
0: paramilitary or extrajudicial killings?
1: Yes, yes, okay. exactly. Uh, some with kangaroo courts others uh, paramilitary and extrajudicial killings. Yeah. Uh, and he is now in, the, in Amsterdam. He lives near Amsterdam a smaller city near Amsterdam and he's kind of in this Gray zone, uh, as far as whether he's a war criminal or not because he's uh, kind of accused of war crimes by the Hague, but not exactly. Okay. Because there are... Uh, so he, for example, cannot um, get the same benefits that other asylum seekers get from the Dutch government because he's supposedly a war criminal, but not exactly, right? <laughs> because he hasn't... Nothing has been proven yet. There are accusations against him, But the accusations are really vague uh, because many of the accusations do not make sense. For example, he having killed, um, thrown personally several people out of a helicopter uh, while that helicopter at that time did not exist in Afghanistan or having killed students from a certain university while that province in Afghanistan did not have a university yet. Okay. All right, so it is not that I don't, Think it's the case that he shouldn't be questioned about these things, and maybe even accused of human rights violations and crimes against humanity, even.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but the question is that this should be done more thoroughly. That that should he should get actually a real, uh, you know, saying. Uh, right. And what what he has done, but also the accusations should have any some legitimacy at least. You know. Yeah. The legitimate speakers should come out and not just these uh, these strange accusations sinned. Uh, from Pakistan, a government that at that time was very much in loggerheads with Afghanistan, you know, right. a government that was getting millions of dollars yeah. from the United States to support the Mujahideen um, against the central government in Kabul or the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, a PDPA on which I work. I didn't even mention it in the beginning. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I, I want to hear more about, uh, about this partly because I want to hear your thoughts about number one, where do you think, what, what's, what are the motivations for these accusations that, um, that are being directed at him? Also, because, because you spent a significant chunk of time uh, in the Netherlands as well. So I, I, I'd love to come back to that. But before that, could we, could you set the stage for, so 1975, the party was. 65. Sorry, nineteen sixty-five. The party was founded, and it was seventy-eight. Uh, they gained power. Yes. So, could you help us understand the whole uh, political context of the founding of the party in sixty-five? What was Afghanistan like during that time? What was its relationship to Moscow? What competing parties were there? Uh, what sectors, what parts of Afghani society uh, did uh, did this appeal to?
1: The leftist, yes. So, um, Afghanistan has had, a, you know, as, as 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 you know, a tumultuous history. You know, the British invaded Afghanistan, had three wars with Afghanistan. The last one being in uh, nineteen twenty-nine when Afghanistan officially, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, nineteen nineteen when Afghanistan officially gained its independence. Although Afghanistan was never officially conquered, its foreign policy was determined by the British. Uh, After they put uh, in power one of the most brutal, um, psychopathic kings of uh, of Afghanistan, Amir Abdur Rahman Khan, who was in power from 1980 till 1901. Okay. I might be mixing the dates a little bit here, but um, from 1890 to 1901. 1880. 1880 to 1901. Yeah. I have to check on the dates. I always get it wrong. But, yeah, no, uh, no worries. Speaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so what was the situation like, kind of the political and social situation in 1960s in Afghanistan? Um, one thing that we have to keep in mind when we talk about it is the role of the United States, right? And the role of the United States, especially in Vietnam. This played a big role among leftists in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, uh, so the U.S. wasn't seen... A, positive light always uh, with, with what they was doing in uh, Vietnam but also in many other countries in Latin America as well as in, uh, you know, for example, Chile uh, that will happen later but people yeah. were aware yeah. of uh, U.S.'s uh, role and the West's role and the West's role as uh, colonial powers all around the world, yeah. you know, and the Congo, what happened with Patrice Lamama, for, for example uh, these are the examples that some of these leftists will give you uh, you know, because the, these examples, even if they happened later, they had precedence.
0: You're
1: right. Uh, you know, right. They, had, they, they knew what was going on, and they were well-read, many of these uh, men and women. Um, their view on the Soviet Union was a bit different. Uh, it wasn't... The view of the Soviet Union, even if you're a royalist in Afghanistan during these years, wasn't negative. Uh, the Soviet Union was often seen in a positive light because... Um, when afghanistan gained its independence in 1919 one of the first countries if not the first country to recognize its independence was the soviet union so lenin actually changed exchange letters with amon khan uh, the king who fought the british uh, in 1919 um and and cr- congratulated him and called afghanistan you know the only independent muslim nation right. uh, whether right. true or not that is what how we, you know he praised right. it and right. so that that shows you that there was some um That the relations weren't bad. That even if the image of the Soviet Union wasn't negative, it may have been neutral. It wasn't negative, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and we can see that in newspapers. uh, Often, we see this uh, quite often. You know, uh, where Soviet Union is even sometimes praised for the aid that they send. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, so um, celebrating Lenin's birthday isn't a big deal, which will later on become a huge contentious issue. Um, I mean, celebrate, like you know, seeing like, oh, Lenin died, you know, and, and that being printed in the Afghan newspaper wasn't a big deal. Right, right. Uh, it wasn't seen as, you know, praising an unbeliever or a coffer or anything like that. Right. that. That attachment, that association had not been made. People didn't care whether he was, he believed in God or not.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so that's, and this is, this is generally among leftists, or this is kind of society-wide at the time? that even conservative Muslims would have would have been... You
1: know, Neutral have,
0: Yeah, they wouldn't have yeah. thought this a weird thing, that we, that, that we could at least commemorate uh, Lenin's birthday.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Afghans didn't commemorate it, right? But like I'm, I'm mentioning about how it could have been printed in the newspaper. Okay. Not as okay. a praise or anything, but just Lenin had died on this date or something. You know, okay. and the Soviet Union is commemorating it, for example. Right. Uh, right. right. Or just viewing the Soviet Union... In its own right, right? Just whether you're looking at it as something positive or negative, it right. wasn't seen as a demon, as this empire. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think society-wide, the Soviet Union wasn't hated. I would argue, yeah. at least when we look at the sources, uh, the, you know, when we look at newspapers, right. uh, which which are the main sources I have looked into for that period. Right. Um, and the economic situation of Afghanistan wasn't great, right? So we we didn't have a middle class. Afghanistan didn't have a middle class, and I should be careful with how I use "we" because I use it sometimes in the sense of being an American as well, uh, you know, right. having had my citizenship for two years now. Um, but I'm saying Afghans didn't have um, um, didn't have great, it, There wasn't a middle class. There might have been a very tiny one. But society was, was divided between the ruling class and the lower class, um, you know. And uh, the problem happens, something that isn't talked much about. We often talk about this these great powers, you know, the Soviet Union, the United States, or the West, uh, you know, India and Pakistan also becoming regional powers, and so does Iran, starting in the 1940s even, what one could argue. Um, you can see the beginnings of these... Uh, you know, with the partition of Pakistan and India and then the rise of Iran and, uh, as, as a significant player uh, through oil and weapons, you know, that the United States is selling them. Right. Um, Afghanistan is rather poor. Um, and we see this specifically... So we talk about all these powers, all these regional as a, as well as global powers, Um But where was I going? Um, Was it A 1970... Sorry, and so we talk about these powers, but one of the things that we don't talk about is how nature has affected things, right? In 1972, uh, drought happens. Between 1970 and 1972, Afghanistan faces a terrible drought, and the lowest estimate for the number of deaths is about 100,000. The more accurate estimate says about 400,000 people starve, die. Wow. because of these droughts, right? And you can imagine that at this time the Afghan population is very small. Yeah. I don't exactly recall the dates. There is one book about this. Um, I think it's written by a Dutch author. Uh, but on the, on the economy and the population size at this point, at that point, because now it's about 35 million people or so, but right. back then it would have been much smaller. So that number, that 400,000 number yeah. would have been huge. would have been a good chunk of the population, meaning everyone was affected. Right. And it is in 1973 that the monarchy falls. Uh, that the monarch's um, cousin, Dawid Khan, overthrows his, uh, the monarch, uh, Zahir Shah, and takes over power. Now, it's, it's been argued that this is the time when leftists are gaining power. You know, people give example of Egypt, example of Indonesia, examples from all over the world. But even in those parts of the world, nature played a big role. And Afghanistan definitely did. Um, you know, this drought allowed Daoud Khan to take over the government without much bloodshed in the beginning. Uh, bloodshed did come along right, right after, as soon as he, he took over power, he imprisoned a lot of people, he uh, disowned, you know, like uh, he took land away from people yeah. uh, and all of that, which happens with every regime change. You know, as we hardly ever see a regime change yeah. in which that doesn't happen. Um, and it's like, it's completely democratic. Um, so I, I think we can see how nature plays a role here, as well as global powers. And it is at this point that global powers have been, the United States, um, Germany, the Soviet Union, they all have been involved in Afghanistan, like they have been many parts of the world through aid. Right, Aid has functioned as a weapon for a very long time. Um, And they have been building projects, taking money away from projects, helping other countries, helping Afghanistan's neighbors versus Afghanistan, you know, using that as a carrot and stick to force the country towards their own line of thought, their own ideology. Um, But I think Afghanistan was very careful not to align itself with one or the other. Of course, when the drought happens and the Outkhan comes, the situation changes a little bit. Um, But I would argue that Daoud Khan, too, was um, very careful not to move towards one or the other side. Okay. You know, try to keep that neutral foreign policy in place for as long as he could. Um, And what he did initially, as soon as he came to power, he suppressed the right wing. So a lot of people that would later on come to be known as the Mujahideen. Uh, are those who commit jihad, uh, right, um, holy war. Um,
0: These were the more or less conservative Muslims, the right wing, who was suppressed.
1: Yes, yes, okay. who were suppressed. And, uh-huh. and and I would say right wing more rather than conservative even, you know, because they're okay. conservative Muslims who were supportive, uh, supporting Dawood Khan, who were supporting the monarchy. Uh, you know, they weren't necessarily uh, against Dawood's policies. Understood. Um, but they were right wing, right, in the sense that they wanted a hierarchical society. Uh, you know, they wanted to have a very capitalist society, um, that they were fond of like landowners, that they were very, that um, they didn't want, uh, you know, they didn't want to see the distribution of land in any way, in any way shape, or form, right? Right, right. Um, it is these people that actually escaped into Pakistan. Their leaders Understood. after the sup- uh, suppression of them, but after he had suppressed them, he went after the left wing, and then uh, he started slowly going after them, closing their uh, organizations. Some of the left wing organizations went underground, and even though the left wing had willing to was willing to help the Khan, because they feared the right wing more than they feared Daud Khan's. Um, a kind of republicanism. Even though it wasn't republican, it was just a one-party system. As mm-hmm. soon as he came to power, he turned it just this one-party regime. Uh, but he still had, you know, um, he used the language at least. He used a popular language. Right. You know, he wanted to be a popular leader, and he got rid of the monarchy. So he, he was at least giving an occasion to open um, room for democracy, even if that wasn't going to happen. Many would argue that that wasn't going to happen, but. The question is, what would have happened if he had stayed in power and then died Mm -hmm. because he had done away with the monarchy? Mm -hmm. Um, That is counterfactual history, so I'm not going to go into that. (laughs) Um, But he did start to repress the left, and then eventually he went after the left, like after their leaders, and he started to imprison them because. In the
0: name of stability, what was his justification for this? In the name
1: of stability, because the left wing was very popular in. Universities, okay, uh, and you know they could, they were able to lead large demonstrations mm. um, once in a while, especially in Kabul. Okay, in other major cities too, but Kabul was the really the main center of left-wing activity. Okay, and I think he feared, you know, he he wanted to have complete control, uh, and and, and he feared them, and he started to imprison their leaders, and he imprisoned many of their leaders, including the PDP leaders, except one. Um, Amin uh, Afizullah Amin who wasn't in prison. and Amin sent the letter he was in under house arrest but he was able to send the letter through his son in 1978 um, and his son uh, delivered the letter to several military commanders who were allied with Amin and they mounted a coup and they succeeded you know, this wasn't, in my opinion, not a large movement. I'm sure it was obviously planned ahead of time that if I were to be imprisoned, this is how I've heard it from uh, from some of these people. And the left itself was very fractured, but some groups within the left said that if, if I was imprisoned, if I am imprisoned, then I will give the go for a coup. And Amin's party was actually separate alliance was separate from many other pdp members many other pdp members did not want a coup to take place even if they were in prison because they again it wasn't that they loved the Khan. they feared the right wing more because they were afraid that if they create more stability that will leave room that will open room for the right wing and they did give examples of a place like indonesia where that exactly happened yeah uh right the communists could not Aligned themselves with the socialists, and the socialists could not align themselves with the liberals, and uh, yeah, that's where you get this very fascistic regime coming into power, which kills four hundred thousand people accused of communism or some sympathy for communism.
0: And something very similar happens in Iran, right? You right, a few the year or two later.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: so, was the is it fair to say that at the time of the coup, the that the Afghan society as you say, there was no middle class. Is it fair to say that there was a bunch of, you know, that maybe elite, the elites in Kabul were very westernized uh, and the extremely poor folks mostly, uh, mostly on the periphery were not? Or is, is it a little bit more complicated than that?
1: I think it's more complicated than that. I think there are definitely elites that were educated in the West. Uh, a lot of them were a lot of them that worked as prime ministers during that decade of democracy that we call during uh, under Zahir Shah uh-huh. uh, were foreign educated and they wanted to create a constitution. There were like there were many attempts like that. There were many constitutionalists since 1905 onward. There were constitutionalists in Afghanistan, okay. but not all of them were educated. Were for, were foreign educated, okay. uh, and I wouldn't say they're not westernized. Okay. Uh, right. So there are many who were educated. in there are some that were educated in the in south asia some in turkey uh right some in the west some in the united states uh what's fascinating is that al amin was educated <laughs> the one that is accused of most crimes in the first year of the p d p takeover he is uh, he puts his boss first in power uh, Tariqi. um but he uh Soon kills his own boss and then takes over. He was educated. Al-Amin was educated in the Teachers College of Columbia as well as Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, so two best teacher colleges. Yeah. Even today, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? At least Columbia's for sure. Wisconsin maybe not so much because of Scott Walker, but uh, you know, um, he was educated in both of these, mm-hmm. and so he comes into the bastion of capitalism, right? At least like the country that uh, that is gung ho about everyone being capitalist and one day coming to the end of history, yeah, yeah. Uh, but goes back home as this hardcore, you know, uh, at least sells himself as a hardcore communist. Understood. Uh, so interesting. You know, uh, although when you talk to some people close to him, which who are hard to find, uh, because, you know, people around him were suppressed as soon as uh, the Soviets invaded and he was killed in a firefight with the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Um, just as he himself had, Killed with Khan, he, his own man had killed with Khan in a firefight. Uh, you know, yeah. when he invaded uh, the palace, uh, the presidential palace in Kabul. Um, so he he comes back home as a left wing. All right, so you can see that even Western education, sometimes we think, well, they want a certain way of life. But even even when they're Western educated, they want different things. Yeah. Uh, right, so you had other Western-educated people who wanted to, who were prime ministers uh, during the decade of democracy, or even under, uh, or even some uh, some powerful politicians under Dawood Khan, um, who were liberals, I'd very much hoping for a constitutional liberal democracy, yeah. uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean a good thing, right? You, you know my view. I'm. I'm rather skeptical of liberalism. Um, but there were people that were... Because what do we mean when they are Western educated, is my question, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it means very different things. Right. It um, can go
0: in many different directions. With, yeah. Yeah, I think of... I think of um, What was his name? The One of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt who comes to America and... Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb. Yeah. yeah he, he has a very... Uh, his patrons hope that his time in America will will kind of de-radicalize him, and the opposite happens. And yeah, there's.
1: <laughs> yes, you, know, you can yeah. go in a lot of different directions <laughs> yes, exactly. After being Western educated,
0: yeah.
1: that's a wonderful parallel, right? You get um, Afzal Lamin who comes back a communist, and you get Sayed Khotob who goes like in a very different direction, right? Now, consider that perhaps after Hassan Albana Banna one of those, you know, yeah. founders of, of uh, not only Muslim Brotherhood but Islamism, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. So I think you're right that there is the. I would argue that there is a division between the extremely wealthy and this great majority of the very poor, poor uh, subaltern class, uh, right, that just lives from day to day yeah. uh, in, in the, you know, I've talked to people who are bricklayers, you know, who are like six, seven years old, and that's how they made a living their fathers had died their widowed mother and you know the mother worked and they worked yeah I've talked to uh, I've interviewed people who are landless peasants uh, you know and uh, the whole family had to work on a parcel of land um, given to them by the landowner Mm -hmm. and they were able to maintain uh, 10% of the of whatever they grow by the end of the year uh, right, and if the crop 10%, fails yeah uh right ten fifteen percent whatever it was it de- it would differ by year right, right because right. it would depend on the on the water and how much water the landlord can get, how much rain there was uh, uh how how good the harvest would be but let 's say the harvest failed right now they're indebted and indebted right. to to the landlord yeah. uh, and and this is this is that majority that we don 't always speak about right. Um, and, that, and it also doesn't mean that this majority was in favor of the left wing uh, sometimes they were even against the left wing um, but it does mean that you had a very very poor and dissatisfied class in Afghanistan
0: yeah so from from 1978 when the party party seizes power how would you evaluate their performance given Afghan society at the time what, what, what glimmerings do we see of the future uh, already in the, in the years after 1978?
1: So one, you know, in, in history, we, we, we don't predict. We wait for things to happen and then write about them, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think at that time, if you go back to the archives in 1978, you would have never guessed that the Russians would invade. Never in a million years. Right? Everyone is surprised. You would have also never guessed that the PDP would come to power. I mean, there, even the British... Um, embassy is completely surprised it you know, calls it out of the blue like this uh, this uh, party coming to power yeah and in fact the people many people in the party that I interviewed, including the this uh, minister of interior, he himself wasn 't hiding when a tank found him uh that he had been found, and then that tank comes and like tells him like a hey tank. uh this was driven by Afghans. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, no, no, no. So, so the Russians come later on. The Russians okay. then bring this guy himself in a tank back to Afghanistan in 1979, <laughs> right? Uh, but when they find him, the Afghan tank finds him and sends him, like, Congratulations, like, w- for what? You know, he's completely taken aback. He's this very surprised revolutionary. And he like, like, Congratulations, we did it. Like, oh my God. And he realizes that it is, they have taken over, that their party has taken over the government. other members were walking around in Kabul when they heard firings uh, like you know they heard guns and stuff like that and they thought there must be a coup by the right wing against the Khan, because they surely would have not done it right so there's a lot of confusion about this now how can I evaluate this because they come to power completely confused right They, they, they don't know what to do so the first thing they do is they start giving positions you know political positions they have to like maintain order they have to say who's the who's the prime minister who's the, yeah, yeah. who's the minister of agric- agriculture you know who's the minister of border relations all these things so they start doing that but the problem is that the pdp itself is divided within between two uh, sectors one is kind of initially claims to be nationalist one is kind of internationalist that division doesn't really hold there is a division more of personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, some ideology, but of personality as well. Mm-hmm. So as soon as they come to power, and as soon as they have divided, a couple of months after they've divided the political positions, there is infighting. So they start imprisoning or sending them to, sending people that they don't like, Amin, especially in Taraki, Taraki and Amin who are ruling now uh to ambassadorial positions as a form of exile okay so then they don't have much say in uh, what's going on in Kabul and as soon as that happens they
0: are able to start stirring the pot outside right it seems like that's a kind of a dangerous thing to do to send the people you fear the people you don't want influencing things uh to, to send them to foreign capitals, to let them communicate to whoever they want
1: to there, is that? Yeah. So one thing, one they know that a lot of these foreign capitals aren't necessarily uh, their allies. Okay. Right. So, but they also trust these men enough that they're not gonna, that they're in a, they put them in a between a hard and a rock, uh, in a, uh, what is it, a rock yeah. and a hard place kind yeah, of, yeah. right? That's one of those things. The other thing I is understood. that they have no choice. They can't just kill some of these men because they're too popular within the party. Mm-hmm. So if they kill them, they themselves will be next in line. Yeah. So the best option is to, like, to send them out. Okay. To weaken them first. But here's the next step. As soon as they send them out, they call them traitors. So that position, that ambassadorial position doesn't remain long. Then they're called traitors and escapees that have to be turned back to Afghanistan and stand trial. You see, so it's not a a permanent thing. It's it's a a very momentary, fleeting position just to give themselves some breathing time to go after their followers. Understood. uh, To excise whatever they can and then, like, you know, go after them. Um, So the situation in Kabul is chaotic. Um, At the same time, it's during these years, it is before um, the Soviet invasion that the Carter regime start supporting the Mujahideen. So they see a left-wing regime coming to power in Afghanistan, yeah. just as they see anywhere, right? No place. Even if you're a nationalist, like, or a pan-Arabist or a nationalist, whatever you call it, like Gamal Abdel Nasser, right? You're right. called a socialist or a communist. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and forces against you are supported.
0: So, no, so the, the Carter administration was supporting the Mujahideen even before the Soviet yes, invasion, yes, yes, yes,
1: yes. I mean, there is there is claims by some American scholars that oh, the support was minuscule. Well, it was support. Mm-hmm. You know, I. It, what if it's minuscule? Okay, so you haven't yet created a situation for a full scale invasion, for a full scale support. Like sure, it wasn't a ton of money yet, but it was support. And yeah. and what the support did was already supporting some of the most radical elements within the Mujahideen. It wasn't, for example, the nationalist elements within the Mujahideen were never really supported. Yeah. It was these radical Islamists, sometimes educated, in Al-Hassar University in Egypt, you know, where they were um, um, influenced by Ikhwani or uh, Muslim Brotherhood ideas. They even called themselves the Ikhwan al-Muslimin.
0: And was Osama bin Laden already on the scene at this point, or is he still mm-hmm. just a
1: construction magnate in
0: Saudi Arabia? That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. So
1: he's not on the scene at, at this time, as far as I know. No. Okay. Yeah, he would come later on once the Soviets invade. Once the Soviets invade, then, um, then Afghanistan becomes the center of jihadism. Okay. Uh, right. Okay. So it's um, it it's exactly the situation that now we. Say we fear about Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq. We don't want it to become a center of jihadism. Back then, as Americans, the United States was supporting pouring millions of dollars to create centers of jihadism because they were seen as impediments to to the spread of communism. I mean, and Afghanistan becomes one of these first centers. Yeah. Uh, right. So, um, so yeah. Once the Soviet invades, then money just keeps pouring in. Uh, and to what the
0: year was the Soviet invasion?
1: Seventy nine. Okay.
0: Yeah. And if we go on a parallel track, what was the situation with what was the situation of the opium and the heroin, heroin trade at this time? Afghanistan was always a large producer, correct?
1: Afghanistan opium at that time, I don't that's not that's not something I study, but as far as I know, it wasn't, se- opium wasn't, um, Afghanistan wasn't, uh, so, so you know what happens with Egyptian history, for some reason, we can, Egypt is a good example, I think, just because of, you know, we have so much documents on it, but mm-hmm. with Egyptian history, uh, with Mohammed Ali onward, it becomes like a place of cash crops. Right, right. That wasn't the case with Afghanistan, because opium is a cash crop. Right, right. Um, Afghans, in my opinion, largely grew food for themselves, because there was okay. so little land. So
0: this wasn't a thing. I mean maybe where was where was most of the heroin and the, the the opium in the 19th century coming from that the Brits were extracting from India and sending to China. that wasn't Afghanistan,
1: right? That was India itself. Yeah. Okay. So this is, you know, cash crops are usually with imp- go hand in hand with empires, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, no, it was I I think it was just primarily from India. Again, this is something I don't know. I think there's a scholar that writes on it in
0: um Okay.
1: Oh, where you got Matt writes on it, right? Matt Warmer yeah. writes on it, but also right. uh there's a scholar in, good scholar in NYU, I think, that writes on it. Uh, okay. I, I forgot. But like, I yeah, and for our listeners,
0: a... Matt Warmer is a, a colleague from Stanford who is who, right. who does write on this. Yeah, he's now at uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst. So, after the Soviet invasion, how does the party navigate the? Uh, how does the party navigate that transition?
1: So they have a very difficult time because they have sold themselves oftentimes to the people at least as this nationalist party you know there are definitely internationalist elements in it uh, you know people who are educated in France for example who are very internationalist but the leadership at least most of their speeches and uh, writings are about this this combination of a kind of nationalism and left-wing politics uh-huh. some kind of popular nationalism Um. And now they have to suddenly justify the uh, Soviet invasion because the leader himself comes inside the country with a Soviet tank, Babra Um So he's no one can deny it. Soviet tanks have like filled up Kabul streets, and some of the party members themselves are disgusted by this, right? Because they, one of the threads in their, um, arguments have all along been afghanistan's anti-colonial position and the, uh, afghanistan anti-colonial politics and therefore their own anti-colonial politics they have demonstrated against u.s ambassadors and politicians visiting afghanistan they have thrown eggs they have been imprisoned for this because they were saying these are imperialists who have invaded vietnam and then now suddenly they they have to say well we are here with the soviets and they take different tracks some of them leave the party because they just can't stand this
0: because the because mainly of of the party is is now
1: is now compromised compromised yes the whole politics of the party is compromised some of them say well this is a difficult situation if we leave we already know that um the right wing is going to come take over and and according to them it's going to be a situation is even going to be worse right so they keep up with it they just They speak against it, but they also work for the party. And then others are very happy. One of them gave me an example and said, if the Soviet Union was invaded, I would have gone and fought. Wow. Because I'm an internationalist. So we were compromised and the Soviet Union came and helped us.
0: Understood.
1: When when this happens to a NATO member, why would we accept that? And why can we not believe, hold the same opinion of, ...of the Soviet system.
0: So the critics were now calling the party a puppet government. Yeah. But many elements were saying, no, this is... Uh, no, no. The Soviets are doing good work here.
1: Some of them were saying. Right. Some of them were right. very hesitant. Others right. left the party. Right. So the party itself became very divided with this. Okay. But what the Soviet Union did with this is that it also poured in a ton of money, which meant attracting new people. You know, so... Now suddenly Afghanistan had this huge army, f- far too big for its size. A party, a a uh, 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 a military, I'm sorry, this huge military, far too big for its size. The military ends up being three hundred thousand strong, which again, for a tiny country like Afghanistan, is just too big. This is not a sustainable military. Uh, but even with that, uh, the party is capable of controlling many major cities. Uh, you know, it's nothing like what happened during the Americans where barely any control existed, right. except the you know, they didn't even have to build these green zones with huge concrete walls and stuff like that. They were actually in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the other hand, um, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran, oh, the Western world, including the Netherlands, for example, that, you know, has this beautiful image around the world, started pouring millions of dollars into Mujahideen parties. But the Mujahideen still they based helped.
0: mostly in Pakistan.
1: Yes, mostly in Pakistan. Some in Iran, but large in Pakistan. Okay. Was, uh, seven, six, seven groups that were supported by by these countries, and uh, even refugee camps that were set up, the refugees could only really get help if they supported these uh, Mujahideen groups. Okay. And the Mujahideen groups that were supported were the most fundamentalist and the cruelest, the ones that did not care. Using, for example, blind sucker Egyptian-made and sucker rockets um on Kabul uh because there are majority parties that refused to do that they also didn't get any funding you know so they supported these these very fundamentalist ones that they knew would would use terror to to damage to create to make Afghanistan to a, what one said the bleeding wound for right for the Soviet Union right
0: so this uh, this is a really interesting comparison to the to the later american occupation so the russians um, based in kabul but were they using the party or elements within the party to uh also exert their control over harat kandahar these other centers
1: for sure um the party really started working with them uh-huh. and so so some elements were uncertain but even they Worked with the Soviets, okay. and and they had, they had quite a bit of power, uh, you know. They had weapons, uh, and yes, they controlled all major cities. Okay. Uh, you know, even some towns, and the leftists themselves, before even before the Soviets came, one way that they attracted people was to go and teach in villages. Okay. Some of them were actually exiled into these villages, so, which helped them like gain supporters. Right, right. But, you know, the Soviet invasion...
0: So still within the party, but they're kind of being troublemakers, and so the party sends them into
1: these... No, this is before even the party came to power. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. sorry, I'm, I'm going back and forth. But during the... when the party came to power, then they started up setting up, you know, agricultural programs. They... Literacy rate skyrocketed uh, right I, I, there are, there is one statistic that literacy rate skyrocketed I guess I don't, I'm saying it on the podcast, but you know I don't know if you, I should say you can't quote me on it, but you know among women it might have skyrocketed like four hundred percent or something okay uh, you know so okay. it's it's this literacy rate definitely skyrockets okay there are a ton of clinics that come in, but the problem again becomes as it usually does with foreign armies with imperial armies is that uh, development is unequal right so certain places like Kabul, Herat, Mazar, Kandar see development they see medical clinics they see doctors they see teachers they see money pouring in they see buildings but then villages and other places all they see are bombs and mines and killings and lootings and uh, and, and this is the time where millions of Afghans become refugees. Right? These refugees aren't just created uh, by one side. These refugees are created by the war, both sides fighting each other. Right. Um, but they don't see the benefit of Soviet aid. Right? They only see its negative side. And so the, uh, is And the, the party uh, is involved in this. The party is right. very well involved. The party controls a huge army and this army is fighting on the front lines yeah against the mujahideen and
0: so throughout the 1980s what was the are the mujahideen gradually infiltrating first the villages and then some of the bigger towns or you know how are they how are they peeling off support from the party and from the from the Soviet occupiers
1: so the mujahideen is i would i would argue that the Mujahideen is a term that is essentially hijacked by some fundamentalist groups. Understood. Because Afghanistan has had a long tradition of fighting, for example, against the British. Uh-huh. Right, three wars from the 1800s, early 1800s onward. Right. Um, and so there are people who say we are Mujahideen because our country is invaded by a foreign power. They do not like America. They don't know about capitalism or things like that. May not know, may know. Some of them are nationalists. Others are doing it for religious reasons. Others are conservatives, Mm -hmm. right? Conservative in the sense that they want to conserve the society that they have. Not create some kind of hierarchical political government or take over the government even. They have none of that ideas. And they're fighting the Soviets as well as the uh, Kabul-centered government.
0: So, is there a label we can give to all this diversity, kind of anti-Soviet diversity?
1: I would say anti-Soviet movement. All okay. right. So okay. I, there is a people's movement. The, I think you could have called it Mujahideen, but the problem is that as soon as we see Mujahideen, some really uh, unsavory characters come to mind, right? Because they are now the head of the Mujahideen. Right. Uh, right? So I so I think there are a lot of like a lot of fighters who themselves are later on uh, killed by these leaders because they don't like them, because they're nationalists, because they do not agree with middling in Afghanistan through American aid or, or, or Soviet aid or army or Saudi aid or army. So there are these people that also exist, but they also exist on the left. One of the first movements that hasn't been studied much, one of the first uprisings in Kabul against the PDP it came from the far left. Okay. Uh, you know, so, and they were pretty much all massacred. Some of their leaders escaped to Pakistan, and they were all killed by the Mujahideen leadership in Pakistan. Okay, uh, you know these were these Maoists, these other left-wing uh, uh, groups that were, you know, Marxist. Um, they were all killed or imprisoned. Yeah, uh, some of them spent a decade in prison uh, before they were released. Some of the Maoists, especially, who were wonderful scholars as well. One of them actually died. I think the day before yesterday in California. Okay. One wow. of the uh, one of their uh, leaders was F. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh,
0: yeah, the the parallels are really striking to me. That as you talk about the Soviet uh, occupation, uh, yeah, I Im- I immediately think of the American occupation. So I mean, what happens between? Does the occupation go uh, all the way until the fall of the wall? Or is it? Is it a few years before that that the Soviets withdraw?
1: So the Soviets already plan withdrawing when Gorbachev comes to power. Okay, they have been all along planning to withdraw, right? They constantly want to withdraw, but then American money keeps pouring in, and they have to stay. Mm-hmm. That is not to say that it's not their fault. They should have never invaded in the first place. Right. And this is this is just a t- terrible decision, and and there were Soviet generals who got in trouble for saying that this is not right. That we shouldn't be doing it. Right. One of them even spoke on, I, I, I believe on TV about it, back then when they were planning to, or when they were planning to invade, yeah.
0: What's your take on, on the justification for invading? What what, what was going on in the minds of the Soviet leadership to say that we, we've got to do
1: this? So there is a bunch of archives on this, right? These are things that are overstudied. Uh, the, compla- <laughs> the complexity of the Mujahideen or the PDPA or the left wing in Afghanistan is, not, is barely studied, right? It's just two, these two groups that are... Uh, killing each other and some would say they've been killing each other for, for centuries so it doesn't matter, right? We just have to use that to our advantage. But the complexity of Soviet decisions, American decisions, oh my God, like, you know, you can go to whether they had a fight with their wife on that day and maybe they decided to like, you know, invade because they were like, you know, all men. So, you know, um, you... you yeah, like
0: for, for us, it was 9-11. For, for the Soviets, what... Yeah. Was there any, any key moment like that?
1: So part of the problem for them was that uh, that Amin created a lot of difficulty for them, okay. uh, right? So the way they saw it is that Amin kills his uh, former mentor Taraki and then now he has taken over, and he just Amin was imprisoning and killing just without any um, opposition, essentially, uh-huh. right? And he was going after his own left-wing comrades as well, right? And I think that was kind of the impetus for them that if this keeps on going, that is one. Of, this is one of the justifications. If this keeps on going, that Afghanistan will fall in the hands of some right wing group. That it will become something like uh, Pakistanis, something like Iranis. Uh You know, because remember at this point, America is not just creating NATO. Yeah. Uh, it is also creating the Baghdad Pact. It is creating the Manila Pact. You know, this creating creating all these pacts to what they call containing the spread of communism, right? Yeah. Um, so the Soviets have legitimate fears from their perspective, not from my perspective, right? Right, right. Um, it's I, very much a Cold War yeah mentality. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Just uh, just as uh, a nationalist or even a, a centrist leader be, is is labeled a communist by this by the U.S. government. You know, so any uh, any movement, and, and remember that this is on the Soviet border, right? At this yeah. point, the Soviet Union is, is has a, this huge border, you know, through yeah. several countries with Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, so this is happening on their border, and they fear that because Pakistan is allied with the U.S. Iran uh, was allied with the U.S. Uh, before the, um, Khomeini takes over, you know, the clerks take over, right? Um. Uh, and Afghanistan is the only one kind of remaining, and this is happening, right? So you can almost see it in the sense, as we see with Ukraine today. When, when does Russia? When, when can Russia say this is enough? NATO can't expand. When can it say, right? And and I think the same decision would have been for them then, uh, that just as Ukraine became the victim now, Afghanistan became the victim then. It's like. When yeah. do I stop, right? Yeah. When do I stop? And in this case, how do I stop my own ally from turning this into an, an enemy nation for me and into an American ally yeah, right for me? Yeah. So I think there are some of those justifications. But there is the Wilson Center and all of that have, has all their like, discussions and conversations and, you know, including people that did not want this war to start because right, right. they knew it was right. not, uh, not, not a good decision.
0: I really want to circle back to the U- Ukraine comparison, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the common thread of, of NATO um, that we're going to see in the occupation of Afghanistan, that we're going to see in Putin's justifications, that we're going to see in the way that the West is thinking about uh, the Ukraine today. But before we do that, what happens to internal Afghan politics upon Soviet withdrawal? Uh, what does it look like between there and nine eleven? What are some of the main kind of characteristics?
1: And these are difficult questions. It's uh, yeah, I, part of what how I say these things is like I go into details, you know, and then <laughs> it's so difficult to abstract because as soon as we kind of abstract and speak in broader lines, it becomes kind of a civilizational, you know, imperial discourse. But right, um, right. but it's a good question, and then it's uh, so the Soviet withdraw. In actually some Afghan parties including some Mujahideen do not want to continue the war in the same way mm-hmm. uh, because you know now it's considered a domestic war uh, a civil war as, as uncivil as it is um, and, but others continue right because the most fundamentalist fundamentalist is a good word so I, I like to use the right wing elements have been supported in Afghanistan, and they are not going to stop, because the Soviets would. Do. Yeah. They label the Afghan government, now led by Najib Allah or Doctor Najib, uh, a communist regime. Uh, even though the PDB completely changes its rhetoric, it becomes very. It, it uses religious rhetoric. It actually uh, does away with some women's rights that they had given initially. You know, uh, which which should like which back then was apparently a good thing. Now it's, women's rights is all we can talk about, right? Right. Uh, when, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, the part of the justification was, was for women's rights. Um, so it changes its rhetoric. It changes its uh, policies. You know, it starts giving more power to landlords. Um, it changes a lot of these things. Um, but the right wing militarized to the teeth. Keeps attacking cities, and not only that, Pakistan keeps supporting them, and Pakistan itself has gained a lot of money through the U.S. during these years. Right. Right, and Pakistan uses Afghanistan as this uh, backyard in case of a an Indian attack, right? Because it's uh, that that politics is again another complicated issue there, mm-hmm. but India was allied with the uh, with the left wing government of in Afghanistan. Um, so, because of that, they want to topple it. So, they keep attacking major cities. And they, in their first major attack, where the US and everyone is certain that they will take over, they're un- un- unable to. As soon as the Soviets leave, you saw what happens as soon as the Americans left. The, the, the government didn't stand, stand for like a couple of days. Right. Um, right. But in, uh, during the Soviets, they thought the same thing that as soon as the Soviet army withdraws, the Afghan, the Kabul, the PDP army, or the DRA army, Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, which later on came to be known as Watan Party, which means Homeland mm-hmm. Party, you know, to, to move away from that leftist rhetoric yeah. because people sounds leftist to people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to certain people. <laughs> uh, and democratic sounds leftist to people, right? So you just move to this very nationalist uh, vocabulary. All right. All right. Uh, they attack, but they, they are not able to take any major cities. Any. Okay. Um, yeah, unlike what happened. Unlike what happened different. here, yeah, even though we spend way more money, right? Yeah. Um, So, the party is able to stay in power until 1992. Uh, and then, even then, Kabul is under their control. The Mujahideen are able to take major cities, like, you know, they take uh, Jalalabad, which is one of the major places, especially for... Kabul, so they opened the route to Kabul, but they still don't have Kabul. And actually, Kabul surrendered by the PDPA, by the by the Watan Party to the Mujahideen. Uh, the president goes into uh, the UN compound. I'm not gonna go into details. A lot happens there, right, right. but he just uh, he ends up in the UN compound where then he is, uh, stays till the Mujahideen, till the Taliban come to power. An offshoot of the Mujahideen, by the way, right? called themselves the Mujahideen in in Afghanistan, not just the Taliban, uh, who had also fought the Soviets, just like these other jihadists had. Mm -hmm. Um, Although they established a different party from different jihadi characters, uh, different Mujahideen characters. Um, And they drag him and then hang him, uh, torture uh, uh, him and his brother, and then hang them. Um, So that's one of the his hanging is one of the signs of Taliban rule, uh, right? So before even we get these images of of women being shot, um, <clears throat> of women being shot in stadiums for Afghans, uh, the hanging of the last leftist president that was hiding in a UN compound in 1996 is kind of this first. Um, controlled cruelty by the taliban because when the mujahideen take over kabul in 1992 when they come start slowly taking over it's one of the worst situations that kabul has experienced all right i mean it's they're infighting there's killing there's rape there's looting there are bombings there's just no breathing room for for people of kabul and in fact, when the Taliban come initially, people are kind of happy—not even happy, but but relieved. There's there's a sigh of relief, sigh of right. relief, right? Because right. okay, there's at least some calm. Yeah, people are not being randomly shot and killed and dragged from their homes. Yeah, right. There's a sigh of relief. But then soon, the Taliban turn to to things that people had not even imagined. Right, destroying. Tape recorder is telling women that a country that is full of widows, right? Because so many men were killed in the war, tell women that you can't go to work, that you can't even get out of your house without a male chaperon, right? Like, uh, yeah. um, so, so it's a different form of cruelty, right? From this this uh, chaotic uh, war zone and killing, it turns into this very controlled form of imposed. Uh, Government that is ruled to on, on, on a very cruel and, and weird system that, that people haven't experienced
0: yeah yeah and so we were talking about this earlier i'd love to, I'd love to get your take on so the what were some of the major errors on the American side in the wake of nine eleven so with hindsight, we know that this long occupation uh, was a disaster, and I definitely, um, there's definitely a lot to say here. But I remember in the early 2000s arguing with friends about you know, that this kind of imposition is going to be a disaster, especially since now opium is a big cash crop in Afghanistan. And now the United States is alienating the farmers of this crop. And of course, alienating larger swaths of society as well. But what, what happened from the Afghan perspective and uh, what if anything could have been done better? I mean, just uh, when the Afghan Taliban government offers to give up Osama, what are some of the some of the ways in which it could have played out? Uh, we were talking about this earlier, but I'd love to I'd love yeah. to get your take on
1: that. So I left Afghanistan in nineteen ninety seven. Um, you know, it's, so I I I saw nine eleven happening from the outside, uh, right? I saw it happening from the Netherlands. I was yeah. in the Netherlands back then. Yeah. Um, I think there are several things, right? One is the concept of blowback is huge, right? So. The U.S. kind of created the situation for itself by arming fundamentalists, even though some have said, well, it was worth it. We defeated the Soviet Union by doing so. Right. And we had to, because the Soviet Union was a bigger evil. All right, if we have to temporarily deal with some Muslim fundamentalists, who cares? Mm-hmm. Until the Ukraine war happened, <laughs> right. we'll deal with them somehow. The Ukraine war ended Muslim fundamentalism. <laughs> uh, but... Um, I mean, we don't get stopped in the airports anymore, you know. Uh, um, so, I think one is, you know, supporting these these elements in the first place. Uh, and in the U.S., we have to remember, the uh, U.S.'s longest ally in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia, uh, which has also funded many of these fundamentalist groups. Um, and Osama bin Laden himself was Saudi, right? And not some minor Saudi, but a major... As yeah. you pointed out, yeah. Saudi f- from a major Saudi family, um, Mike. I was I was surprised at the invasion. Let me just think about it back then, because for me, I did not expect the U.S. to go after this very poor country. I just didn't think it was. Um, even if you look at it from the manuf- weapons manufacturers' perspective, I didn't think it was worthwhile. Right, it was too. S- it would not make for a big war, I thought. Mm-hmm. Not big enough to, to make money on it. Mm-hmm. But I guess I didn't think of the prolonging aspect of it. You know, so I look at it from this very uh Machiavellian perspective. You know, that I I think it was one this war of revenge, right? We're gonna give the American people something. Uh which is which is I, I'm, I'm surprised at how Afghanistan even came to be uh, the Goliath that could give America... I even thought that it was too small for the American public to feel satisfied as far as the revenge goes. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? Like it's... I
0: do, I do. But then, I mean, consider that none of the hijackers on 9-11 were Afghan yes, or indeed yes. Iraqi. Or, yeah,
1: uh, yeah. yeah. It's So I, I'm just, I was just, I, I think I was just... Mesmerized at the at the media and the government's capability to spin something, to make this tiny, one of the poorest country in the world, countries in the world, because I think back then we were in the top poor, poorest countries in the world, like in the top ten or top four, something like that, right? Like one of the most devastated countries on the face of the earth, to turn that into this huge Goliath that we're gonna take over, you know, that we're gonna bomb and that we're gonna get our revenge on i just i i for me it was just so small right how how does it even if you're really out out for revenge really really out for it is that enough? so I was surprised that that was enough uh, yeah. you know I I, mean, I I don't even know how to uh, how to explain it i i guess i'm I'm trying to go back to when I was like thinking about this when I was young you know when I was in my teens
0: yeah i mean i was in my i guess I was in my mid twenties at the time and and I don't know, from a from a from a different perspective, I I, I remember arguing with friends in California about like, how do we possibly think? I mean, even at a revenge level, this this doesn't make sense. This um, we are blundering in in the same way the Soviets did mm-hmm. in the same way the Brits did. What well, what do we think is gonna is gonna be the upshot of this? Especially since the government was willing to hand hand over Osama bin Laden on a platter. There could have been some sort of you know, medieval justice that could be cathartic uh, on that level. But it seemed like there was, it was mixed up with the, um, the city on the hill idea. It was mixed up with American idealism and exceptionalism. No, 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 we're going to make Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq democracies at long last. There, were, there was a lot of that real, um, so perhaps, yes, a Machiavellian element on the underbelly, but then with...
1: Piggybacked, kind of.
0: Right. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Versailles after World War I when Woodrow Wilson is, uh, you know, he's, he's, he wants to establish his League of Nations. This is going to be the war that ends all wars. This is going to be, uh, you know, finally the self-determination of all peoples while, of course, the French and the British Prime Ministers are running rings around him and, and, and being much more Machiavellian. Um, yeah, I,
1: I... So for me, it's, you know, that's that's a later addition, right, to, to the whole invasion thing, because Taliban were suffering economically enough that they could have just forced them, right? I mean, there was the whole pipeline, oil pipeline and all of that that could have easily been used as, uh, as a factor to force them to give up. Osama bin Laden, right. or just right. have a... We, the U.S. became famous for targeted assassinations and during Obama, right? And even before that, why couldn't that be a goal? Right. Exactly. And I, I mean, this is the strongest empire that the world has ever seen. There is, there is no shortage of ways to kill. Uh, if, if, if there's one thing it's really good at, right? The amount of money that... The one thing that Congress... Liberal or conservative can agree on is more money for these ways to find on you know, on ways to exterminate, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I mean,
0: one one of the things that and which
1: which we did in Pakistan. Yeah, exactly. Right? We didn't invade Pakistan to kill it.
0: Yeah.
1: We we talked to its government. Its government never admitted that it gave like its position away. <laughs> it did, and then we killed them. Right. Yeah. That could have, the same could have been done with Taliban. Now yeah, one could argue, well,
0: special forces.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and this this goes to the larger kind of strategy, or rather lack of strategy, that marred American responses to 9/11. Right. If if we are de- if if we are trying to prosecute a guerrilla war against fanatics, part of that prosecution of a guerrilla war is we keep the population on side, we go after the hardcore ones, and we try to. You know, it's a hearts and minds campaign as well as a as um as well as a campaign of force and that's the exact thing that seemed to fly over the heads not only of american leadership but of most of the american populace
1: um, West, the western world generally right you could see how like the Amer- americans were joined willingly and happily by everyone even a tiny western european country that could <laughs> contribute one airplane they contributed one airplane just to be part of the war I mean the happiness with which they went after Afghanistan uh, was just uh, I mean shocking to me it just told you how they view people in certain parts of the world the humanity of certain people and then to justify that with saying we are trying to build something here as you're bombing things uh, its I mean you, you, you know it it's something that can only be sold to people I think that have never been to these places, that have never felt any relation to it um, because I, I, I don't see it in any other way uh, you know, I, I can't see it from yeah. another perspective
0: yeah.
1: I just don't know how the happiness and I, I think you gave the example of like you know, World War I uh, in which people were so happy to go to war, but at least then they were risking something Now you had this population risking nothing and being happy for a war. Not everyone, right? I know examples. I've told you about a friend of mine whose dad was very anti-war, demonstrated against it, you know, um, in his group that did. Uh, But but there is still a kind of giddiness about bombing a country that cannot do anything back, a people that cannot do anything back.
0: Yeah, yeah
1: and yet also at the same time uh, constructing your own moral um, like moral mask right i'm doing this for liberating women i'm doing this for democracy i'm doing this for nation building
0: yeah yeah that could you talk a little bit about the nato aspect of this because this is going to be important when we start to shift to ukraine Mm -hmm. right i um Because it was such a broad-based, you know, unlike Iraq, actually, Afghanistan was just such a consensus view throughout the West. Yes, this is what we have to do. Um, We were talking about this a little little earlier, but what were some of the main kind of things getting overlooked by this broad-based Western consensus? You know, democracy, uh, women's rights, uh, all all very good things all very uh, um, worthy ideals. But what, were, what was it that the West was missing uh, in, in speaking this language?
1: So just to go back history, we just talked about the large swaths of Afghanistan history that were constructed by the West. One of the things that the West never mentioned was how these, what they call fundamentalist Islamists, I'm saying these in quotations, right, right? right? These new words, these new inventions in Western languages itself, whether in Dutch or German or yeah, yeah. American, right? I mean, for the general public, maybe there was one or two Esoteric uh, scholars working on Esoteric languages or stuff that might have used some of these words. But right. for the general public, these were all new. Yeah. And they just also ate it up, you know, like, oh, yeah, Islamists, Sharia law, you know, um, which, by the way, now is a good thing suddenly. I remember when it comes to LGBTQ groups, another group that we can suppress, we are friends with Sharia law people. <laughs> um, whoever they, those people may be, you know, not Muslims like me. But um, But I think that history, right? So one is, what is my contribution to having created Osama bin Laden as a Western nation? What is my contribution to... Going even back to that, that is my contribution in using Saudi oil that enabled someone like the Osama family and the Bin Laden family to become this wealthy, to be able to essentially you know, plan terrorist attacks on 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 the in the heart of the empire. Right? I think this history was completely missing. How how have these Taliban and others gain access to so much weapon? A country that can't even feed itself, how does it have access to such large amounts of weapon? We see the same thing in Liberia, for example. Right, in Haiti, we see the same thing. These are countries that can barely feed themselves. The large majority can barely eat, and yet they have sophisticated weaponry. Have these countries made these weapons? No, they're all Western-made weapons. Right, so I think one thing we missed is one is this this history of our own culpability of the West's own culpability in this, and in media you never heard this, right? These these fundamentalists just mushroom. They have hated us since the Crusades. Forget about the Cold War when they were our allies. No, let's we'll just go back to the Crusades. We'll shove the Cold War aside. You have Russian imperialism that we have been talking about aside for a while, till Ukraine happens, you know, then it comes back. Uh, but now we have a different enemy. So I think we never even questioned where this enemy came from and our own relation to this enemy. Um, I think that was completely missing. You know, the Toyota trucks on which all these Taliban were driving. Where did these Toyota trucks come from?
0: Yeah, with Toyota trucks with the gun racks. Right. With the, with the huge machine gun. Yes, yeah. yes.
1: Brand new yeah. Toyota trucks, you know. Where are they coming from? Um, and then not only that, our own foreign investment in these other countries, including Pakistan, Egypt, countries that get millions of dollars military aid yearly from us.
0: You mentioned the uh, the the levels of poverty, the inability to eat. Right, to and that is
1: people. another thing, yeah, yeah.
0: Like how does that? I know. I know this is. <clears throat> I know this seems like a stretch, but uh, there are there are lots of people in um, in the Western world, generally more wealthy, generally more progressive, who will. Uh, they have all these spiritual beliefs about you know. Um, well, if 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 I'm. If I'm only thinking in the right way, then I will become wealthy, or even more wealthy. Even uh, I will have peace in my life. I will. And they want to apply these ideas to places outside the West. Like, oh no, no, it, like it's it, we can. You know, I, it's a. I, I know, I know, I seem very judgmental, but but uh, but a. Uh, you know, someone in the Bay Area who says, oh, I'm going I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to West Africa and I'm going to teach yoga to survivors of genocide. You know, this sounds like a caricature. This sounds this sounds like something totally made up, but this is something that, that a lot of people in the West put, put credence in, put, put their you know this, this is what I'm going to do. this is my contribution to the world. and it seems very similar to the talk about democracy and human rights to uh, Society that, that cannot even feed itself. Like, how do, how do we... How do we prioritize what we need to prioritize and um, and save the highfalutin ideas for, for for later, sometime down the road, maybe? Yeah. Like, could you speak I, to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't know. I, I think it, it is not, you know, when you talk about this, it's not like people in West Africa or Afghanistan or, you know, South Asia or where, where all these places do not want... Uh, civil societies uh, do not want women's rights uh, mm-hmm. you know I mean one uh, Afghan activist um, is, is in jail right now because despite the Taliban ban he uh, was taking books all over the country into the most remote villages for girls to get educated uh, you know now you know, Afghan civil societies are calling for his release uh, God knows what's going to happen to him you know if he's going to be released or not yeah. if he's going to stay alive or not yeah. Um, you know, these are people that take real risks and do this. And as you know, you can be a Western journalist, uh, and you barely run a risk of dying in a war zone because you, you, you carry a, a passport, a, an entire, I would argue, um, ecosystem around you Absolutely. Uh, that does not allow for that to happen because people fear it. People, you know, people know they can't they can da- take that risk. That yeah. means there's definite death. Yeah. Uh, right? And some Western journalists have been killed but that's in the grand scheme of things that, that's nothing when you compare it to the lives lost of local peoples. Yeah. Right? Or local journalists. journalists. who have survived. Who have, yeah. who have survived. Who have, survived. Yeah. Who have been yeah. safe. Who have been safe. Yeah. Uh, lo- local journalists, right? They they can right, never right. do these things. Yeah. I mean, just look at just the ma- example over across the border, Mexico. Right? There's daily uh, or weekly killings of journalists, right? Uh, those who at least publish things that are against that go against um, powerful elements in the country. Um. So I, I don't know how we justify it. For me, the important thing is to talk about material conditions. Like that is something we never do. We always talk about these, what did you call these? Uh, yeah, you know, these
0: really high flooding ideas. high flooding yeah.
1: ideas. This, like you know, what you could call this, this superstructure. You know, this, this, uh, these uh, symbols. But nothing below them. Not that symbols are not important, right? They are important. But what about the material conditions? You know, we we have completely done away with it. And we see that in academia as well. And how many professors do you know that talk about? people's material conditions we talk about their culture we talk about their democracies their, we talk about their habits as if they're all completely unrelated to their environments as if they're all completely unrelated to uh to you know to poverty how often do we talk about poverty you have to go to some geography class to hear it now i feel like all the you know all those who talk about the poverty are now relegated to the geography department <laughs> and nobody listens to them um you know, we, there are very few. I mean I've been in US academia for what, fifteen years now, you know, and you barely hear Yeah, it.
0: yeah, everything the fashions in academia don't
1: no don't um, flow
0: don't flow in that direction. No it's all intellectual history it's all
1: it's rights, it's, right. it's, it's, right. it's yeah. as again, it's fine to talk about those things, but they have no at least have some connections to to material conditions as well, to economy as well. But it's none of that. We have kind of accepted that there is one way to do economy. There is one form of economy. There is only capitalism. But if you look at that, you know, listen to someone like Yanis Varoufakis, for example, uh, the Greek economist turned for a while politician, even if he didn't want to. You know, he he says that the U.S. is actually one of the most, um, as far as government funding goes, one of the biggest ones because the us funds its programs i mean look at our extremely bloated healthcare system there's so much money in it and it's all government funded not every disease is helped but we what we do here is we stabilize people and then leave them back on the street you know so the government is very much involved or look at our weapons manufacturers they're as socialist as it gets it's all government funded but we don't call it socialism somehow. Right, right. This we do call it socialism when it goes to the poor. <laughs> <laughs> but to the rich, it's not socialism, right? Our, our banks, the way they were built up. Again, socialism, right? It was a government that bailed them out but gave them back to private individuals. Um, so I, I think what we have done away with, maybe we sh- I should be just straightforward about it. we have ju- just done completely away with class. You know, and, and so that is not something that we do. Why I'm coming to the US is that that is not something we do just in Afghanistan or when we talk about foreign policy in Afghanistan. That is something that we have done here as well and we export it everywhere else. Yeah.
0: yeah. Could, could you speak for a minute about the compare, comparing the NATO coalition and the inv- invasion of Afghanistan and the NATO coalition in support of Ukraine? like where would the where would you see similarities? where would you see differences um, it, it at the moment, certainly in America, and I think it's fair to say this is throughout the west the it has become a part of the culture wars not i mean and, and, it, and it's not exactly a right left thing, but certainly the further right a person will identify in america the um I think it's fair to say the more they will uh, have a lot to have a lot of criticism of our support of Ukraine, <laughs> um, and yet there's also the, 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 the same argument could also be made on the left. Whereas you've got this mainstream view that no, of course, I mean it's this it's this coalition of the willing. It's it's the uh, um, you know, United States in particular, but NATO more broadly is is is, is, is very committed. Uh, uh, to defending uh, Ukraine against against Russian aggression, and what would you see as valid in the uh, in in these points of view? What would you see as as really needing further looks, needing further analysis?
1: It's it's a different different difficult comparison to make because you know even even when you said for example I see you see parallels between the. British invasion of Afghanistan, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and then the American one, you know, for me, they're rather different. Sure, they're parallels, but they're also very different. I think yeah. in this case, we should also keep in mind that they're very different. They're both spatially and in, in geographically, you know, like at time-wise, all of this historically taking place in different times, yeah. you know, in a unipolar world for the most part. Um it's, it's interesting that it is the right wing now someone like Trump who asked European Western Europeans, well you should pay more you want my security you should pay more uh, <laughs> you know one thing I have to say it's funny you call it part of the culture wars and I'm not being uh, I'm, I'm trying to s- talk clearly I'm going everywhere is you read articles even in a place like Intercept which is very skeptical of NATO because it does see it. Many of the authors in the intercept see NATO as this imperialist military alliance, which I think it is, you know. Um, but in every article, they have to point out three, four times, some of the best writers, not just an inter- intercept, anywhere else. They have to point out three, four times that I am um, not defending Soviet, uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, <laughs> you know. So I should point out, I'm not defending it just like I, as I did not, as I, I abhorred the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You know, I think the same goes here. You, you should be clear about that. But because it has become a part of culture wars, you have to apparently point out to this over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, you know, um, but I think just a few months before the invasion of Ukraine, there was uh, the new yorker published an article interestingly enough that argued when it, it, the, the part of the argument was when when does the when does nato expansion become a problem does it and this is a good question to keep in mind right we should really think about it put aside the ukraine invasion and again terrible what's happening right but just Let's think about it. When does it become a problem? Or does it become a problem? Or have we accepted that we should all just be NATO members if we can be? Otherwise, we are against them. You're with them or against them? Right. And what do we need NATO for? Against Russia? I mean, Russia isn't even the Soviet Union anymore. Why do we need NATO for that? So is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? If there was no NATO, would there be an Ro- invasion of Ukraine? You know, a lot of these Eastern European countries would say yes. I think a lot of Afghans would even say yes of Afghanistan's invasion. Right. So I, for me, I, I see some parallels in the sense that I think when you mobilize an entire country in a war and you do not look as they never looked, the U.S., the, its NATO, Western allies... Its Saudi allies and other Arab and Muslim allies never tried to look for a political solution in the Afghan globalized civil war, right? Because it was a civil war and it was globalized. They never looked for a political solution. I because think.
0: Because it was such an existential
1: thing in yes, the Cold War. They saw it as such an existential thing. Yeah. And it was our bodies, not theirs. Right? Where was their risk? Where was the risk for them? Yeah. I think the same thing is now happening with Ukraine. It is Ukrainians and Russians that are being killed. How many of these... I mean, the NATO alliance has only attacked some of the countries that they knew had no chance against them, like Iraq and Afghanistan. When it comes to powerful countries, they do it through proxy wars. And Ukraine has turned into a proxy war. And what proxy war leaves behind, I fear, is extremely, from my perspective, fearful right-wing elements you know so we have this this rhetoric this this moralist rhetoric of doing good of turning countries into democracy of saving them from empires like russia because we are saying putin wants to go back to the russian imperial past or the soviet imperial past or whatever as if we are as if we are a republic we don't have a draft we're not a republic we have money in politics we're not a republic read Machiavelli, go back and read the, 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 you know, the Roman scholars. We don't have elements of republicanism left in this republic, and we are expansionists, so we are not a republic. Or we real go read all who, have, who had already argued and ironically titled one of his uh, collection of essays, The Last Empire, because we think we are the last empire. Right? So I, th- I, th- I think this militarization of a society, in not looking for political solutions will not end up will end up like a, a, like a, with a lot of debts maybe not like afghanistan but debts either for the ukrainians or for russians in either way it's not a good situation right so I, I i would argue that the main thing we should look for is a political solution Something that China—and I'm not uh, supporting China—look what's happening in in to the Uyghur, right? But something that China has actually proposed to look for one.
0: Yeah, this is a really important point. I—I I, I would. I'm not sure if we'll get to do it today, but I really want to circle back to the whole Republican thing. I think that's a really interesting, you know, vein that we could mine. But the.
1: We can talk about political theory sometimes if you want. I, I would love to talk yeah, about yeah. Republicanism. Absolutely, about absolutely. But yeah, let's keep it for another thing.
0: Yeah, the um, when you do hear about, uh, about the endgame, about where the West sees it going, there's this, there is, I, I think it's fair to say, a contradiction, or at the very least a gulf between, okay, saying, it's the Ukrainians who have to decide. And if they want to recover all the land, including Crimea, like then it's our it's our bounden duty to support them. Um, and you don't they, you don't you don't hear that said very explicitly, but that but that's that's the clear implication. Yeah, I, yeah, you're not wrong to be to, to say. Look, a political solution would be, you know, what is in the realm of the possible right now, um, because if this thing drags on for a long time, I mean, you could say that there's a Machiavellian aspect to all of this, oh, well, we're, you know, in addition to the idealism that, that, that we have as this Western coalition of the willing, uh, there's also a, a Machiavellian element that, hey, as long as this war drags on, the, you know, Russia will grow steadily weaker. Mm-hmm. It'll... There is, of course, a problem with that analysis, and so, um, yeah i i th- I think it's really necessary as you say to put that to put that a search for a political solution where lots of people will have lots of different perspectives on what that might be, but to at the very least put that at the center of what of what the discussion is um, what would if this does drag on, what are some of the consequences that that you might that, that you would foresee uh the knock-on effects, uh, you know, Russia growing more defensive, more jingoistic. Um, I don't know how would, how would you see it playing out if we don't put a political solution, a discussion about a political solution, uh, at the center of what we're trying to do here.
1: I think you know we we started our discussion when I said that um, historians wait for things to happen and then write about them. One of the reasons why we don't get enough students, you know, because they want prediction. People want to predict. Uh, So I'm not, (laughs) I don't like predictions, uh, but I'm going to try. Um, I think one, as I said earlier, there there are two things, right? One is NATO just hopes that they will exhaust Russia or they will topple Putin through some internal uh, discontent. And then... um, have their way, you know. Ha- let, let Ukraine take whatever it wants and maybe even have more countries join NATO. Uh, maybe even have access to to Russian resources. You know. um, easy access to it, rather. That's one. The other thing that I fear would happen is that this war is just going to drag on and that we will just keep seeing more and more That's and it's not just that Russia is going to become more jingoistic; that Ukraine will also become more jingoistic. Uh, And I don't think that's what many Ukrainians want. And in fact, when Ukraine um, journalists were talking recently, which she really feared, that Stanford had invited you know the head of some some other members that glorify Hitler, you know, uh, people like that. I mean, they're a small element, but that will just keep growing. I think they are a small element, I know, but if they are small right now, they will keep growing. So you will see, just as we saw the Mujahideen, right, keep growing. uh, We will see that happening. Um, And I think NATO and American politics is kind of a politics of cowardice, right? This is is politics without risk. You may be funding it, but you're not risking any lives. So that is why it's so easy to play the yeah. <clears throat> this, this game for us. It's not, it's not American skin, it's not NATO skin. It is the lives of Ukrainians and Russians.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really important point, especially since one of the big part, one of the big critiques that, you know, not all on the right, but many on the right in America and, uh, and elsewhere in the West charge. They say, look... Like, they, they'll say, look, there is something of a point in, uh, in Putin's claim that, you know, Ukraine is infested with Nazis. He's wrong, but there is a shred of a point here. And indeed, if we continue along this path, perhaps we could.
1: But that's an overblown point. For one, the right itself is actually pretty happy with those, <laughs> with those Nazis. You know, sometimes they themselves would be supportive of them.
0: I I suppose so, but no. These are the, these are the, these are the well-meaning. Like you know how, you know it's it's more than common for, for right and left in America today. The law of accusations. that The other side are Nazis. Yeah. Like, like just taking it on its face. It's like, we can definitely critique, you know, Putin's justification for it, but when other people ride those coattails, when other people say, oh well, maybe there's a point there. it seems like i i i I think your point is very very well taken that if the war does drag on those elements which might be small which might uh, like will almost inevitably grow because these are the kinds of people who thrive in a war-torn country um yeah
1: i so i again i don't like predictions but that is what could happen one of the things i think we shouldn't fear is that because we make an argument and that argument might a part of that argument might align with ideas that we despise. Right. Well, I mean, Walter Benjamin wrote a letter to Karl Schmidt praising his one of his essays. Right. Mm-hmm. And in here you have people on the complete opposite sides of German politics. Now I have,
0: I have heard the name Walter Benjamin.
1: Uh, please. He was a German uh, philosopher. Okay. Uh, who committed suicide thinking that the nazis would catch him okay. uh in the 19 i think it was 1940s or before that i don't remember the date okay uh, and carl schmidt was also a philosopher a legal theorist who right. was, was very, very, aligned, with with yeah, very, very yeah. aligned with the nazis very very aligned with the nazis um so i i don't think we should fear that that some of our arguments might align with I know, not comparing myself to thinkers like that, but uh, you know, I I just like drawing from them. We shouldn't be fearing that you know I'm saying something, and because that is that will be thrown at us, right? Well uh yeah. you know I, I don't know the head of like one percenters was saying the same thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is possible sometimes people will say things bad people will say things that I have said as well <laughs> <You know? laughs> they might order the same food in a restaurant as well that I order you know <laughs> so right that's uh, I, like being fearful of that
0: <laughs> seems like the, the worst the, the, the worst of all possible yeah I
1: think self policing to not fully talk because yeah. you might... Occasionally align with some uh, someone that is insane, yeah. and especially in this world where everyone has a platform, yeah. uh, as I'm getting a platform. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I I don't think we should let that fear, you know, stop us from speaking about certain things.
0: That's an essential point because one of one of the things that, that drives me nuts is that. Whether we're talking about you know pick pick your point, pick your historical topic, pick your political platform, the vehement discussions that yeah, the vehement pseudo discussions sometimes people are just screaming and talking past each other, not even talking at each other. But the similarities between the two are often much more salient, much more relevant than whatever the content is that they're yelling each other, yelling at each other about. That in this case that both sides are really 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 convinced that no 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 no, no. we are the good people they might be the, they're, they're definitely the bad people maybe they'll come to jesus at some point but we are the good people of course of course like and maybe we need to take on a little bit more of you know you know we're all humans we all have fundamental flaws uh let's that's at the at the very beginning be on and in the middle and at the end be honest about that and maybe we'll get someplace more productive as we as we fight our corner
1: i agree and i think also understanding the even people that we despise right i mean i uh, when i teach history i i assign for example pieces from Sayyid uh, Qutb, as well as Carl schmidt uh, you know I, yeah. I, I these are people that i fundamentally disagree with yeah um, but I don't just assign people I love, you know. Uh, yeah. I think I have to read them as closely as those with whom I agree. Uh, and that doesn't say that I should agree with them or not, uh, or not even hate them. That's fine. But I should understand that.